1: Right rug flooring.
5: Welcome back to Cast. I am your host, Jamie Loftus, and I've made it three whole nights without a large 2D Kathy cartoon appearing at the foot of my bed and threatening my one human life. We'll take the wins where we can get them. In part one of this episode, we explored the women who preceded Kathy Geiswhite in the comic strip industry, who were frequently erased, as well as the radicals who worked in underground comics, that's C-O-M-M-I-X, thank you very much, while Kathy was getting her start in the far more restrictive national funny pages. In part two, I want to feature four of her contemporaries, all boomers with one exception, whose strips had missions similar to Kathy's with very different approaches. That goal? To document the day-to-day struggles of the boomer generation. The difference is all about who is being put into focus on that mission. Our first artist came straight out of the women's comics scene, far from the mainstream funny pages. So, let's get the theme song going, right?
3: She burst into the world in 1976. She's at work, she's out on dates, and she don't like politics. From mama and her urban to her feminist friends. She's fighting all the stanzas with some chocolate and hand. Kathy, she's fighting back.
5: The biggest star to come out of women's comics was, hands down, Alison Bechdel, who's now a MacArthur Genius Award recipient. She's the author of books like Fun Home and Are You My Mother? Fun Home was turned into a huge Broadway musical also. But that ascent to the top was a slow and challenging one, and one that women's comics helped lift early in her career. She first appeared in issues in the 1980s. Bechdel established herself as a cartoonist through her independent comic strip, Dykes to Watch Out For, which ran in local feminist newspaper Woman News beginning in 1983 and was eventually syndicated in other alt-weekly papers beginning in 1985. Most famously, a comic of two characters discussing the lack of women speaking to each other in popular movies led to the coining of the Bechdel test, a popular media metric that requires that two women need to speak to each other about something other than a man for two lines of dialogue to pass the test. Some people have even started podcasts about this, I've heard. Although it is just a jumping off point for discussion, I'm sure. It's funny because the context of that comic is two lesbian characters frustrated that women never speak to each other in movies, meaning that lesbian audience members couldn't ship them together. So it's also a strip about a lack of queer representation as well. Anyways, here's Bechdel in an introduction for a 2008 publication of the comic's entire run, explaining why she started the strip.
6: Readers seemed to like it and egged me on, but to be honest, it was so comforting to see my queer life reflected back at me. I would have kept drawing these dykes to watch out for just for myself. Let me tell you, my friends, those were benighted times. Despite what my mother thought about my lesbianism, being an out dyke was not an easy row to hoe. We had no L word. We had no lesbian daytime TV hosts. We had no openly lesbian daughters of the creepy vice president. We had personal best, and we liked it. I saw my cartoons as an antidote to the prevailing image of lesbians as sick, humorless, and undesirable. Our model-like Olympic pentathletes. Objective fodder for the male gaze. By drawing the everyday lives of women like me, I hope to make lesbians more visible, not just to ourselves, but to everyone. If people could only see us, how could they help but love us?
5: Dykes to Watch Out For has an expansive cast of characters who aged in real time for the 25 years that the comic ran in a fictional city whose world reflected the reality of the U.S. at that time. The comic's protagonist is Mo Testa, a radical leftist lesbian who is trying to navigate building a life for herself while upholding her values. Her Achilles heel is a tendency to complain about everything, and she works at a lesbian feminist bookstore where we meet most of our other characters. There's Clarice, an environmental lawyer and Moe's college ex, who's in a long-term relationship, and eventually marries Tony, a CPA. They later have a kid together as well. There's Lois, a drag king who encourages everyone to be more accepting. There's Ginger, the eternal grad student. Sparrow, who runs a battered women's shelter and eventually comes out as a bisexual lesbian. There's Moe's girlfriend, Sydney. And there's Josanna, who owns and runs the bookstore. Not only is this comic really good, it touches on so many issues. Issues relevant to queer people, to women, to boomers in general. Just like Kathy chronicled the week-to-week worries of a number of white middle-class boomer ladies, Bechtel's work does the same for the lesbian community over the course of decades. And while Bechdel herself is a white lesbian, she makes a concerted effort to show the diversity of her community in race, gender, sexuality, and ability. One of the early taboo topics that newspaper comics wouldn't have been able to touch with a 10-foot pole was the AIDS crisis, which Bechdel has her characters talk about frankly in the 80s and even works to correct some of the popular myths around the disease. Here's a strip from 1987 with Moe and Lois. Lois has just had unprotected sex. Mo says, Lois, you can't just go around betting
6: every woman you meet. Haven't you heard? There's an epidemic going on. Ah, oh, Mo, relax. Lesbians are a low risk group. I'm not going to get AIDS from sleeping around with other women.
5: Lois, being a doesn't mean you can't get AIDS. This conversation continues with Mo overreacting and demanding Lois be celibate. Lois refuses, then Ginger shows up and diffuses the situation by telling Lois that of course she can have sex, but while gay men were at higher risk for AIDS, that didn't mean that she wasn't obligated to practice safe sex. And it all manages to be funny somehow. It's great. Mo and her friends experience the world in real time. The whole gang goes to a kiss-in to protest anti-gay laws at the real March on Washington in 1987. Clarice and Tony struggle to have their union formally recognized for years, whether it's issues allowing Clarice to formally adopt her son that they have through artificial insemination or by having their eventual marriage recognized in states where gay people still could not marry at that time. Trans characters enter the story as well. Mo is stupendously turfy at the start of one storyline that's short for trans exclusionary radical feminist and they can say it with me fuck right off to hell in this storyline a trans woman new to the bookstore wants to join mo's book club and mo is hesitant to include her lois educates mo and tells her that she's being a bigoted asshole and mo changes her perspective much later in the comic, there is also a trans teen coming out story from the early 2000s in which Lois's partner's daughter navigates gender dysphoria, coming out to her mom, and becoming a young trans activist. The economic trends of these years are shown as well when the independent bookstore that everyone works at closes due to a big box store coming to town, Moe's girlfriend survives breast cancer, they attend anti-war protests for every war that takes place between the 80s and the late 2000s. So, quite a few. Because Bechdel's characters had all kinds of different opinions on politics and pop culture, Dykes to Watch Out For was able to challenge schisms within the queer community, within political parties, within friend groups. Here's a conversation between Ginger and Lois from 1993 about their frustration with white gay men being quicker to be embraced by pop culture than queer women. Ginger says...
6: Newsflash, a recent sex survey of 20-somethings revealed that among men who fantasize about celebrities, Cindy Crawford and Demi Moore rank high. Women opt for Luke Perry and President Clinton, while gay men tapped Marky Mark and Tom Cruise. Period. End of paragraph. Do you think that means lesbians don't fantasize about celebrities, or they don't answer surveys? How come men get to be totally queer, but women don't? I'm sick of being portrayed as some straight slob's porno fantasy. And on paper, Kathy and Dykes to watch
5: out for sound and are extremely different. But at their core, their goal is pretty similar. It's for their authors to pull from their own lives as boomer women to comment on the world around them, on the changing politics and standards of the U.S. at the end of the 20th century. It's their perspectives and where they publish that are different. While Alison Bechdel, an outspoken queer feminist and leftist, could talk about almost anything she wanted and address topics that were still taboo in the mainstream, the trade-off was that less people would see it, and she would make a fraction of the money her funny-paid colleagues did. Kathy was always beholden to the editors of the United Press Syndicate and the individual papers that carried her work. The trade-off for her? More money and more eyeballs. But good luck if you happen to want to vote for Michael Dukakis. The mainstream papers were not ready for Alison Bechdel and certainly not for the women of women's comics, but they hold a very important place in women's comic art. And in the case of Bechdel and Trina Robbins are finally getting their dues. And side note, even Alison Bechdel made a jab at Kathy in a strip of hers. Uh, Moe's ex Harriet is like reading a newspaper in the Sunday Funnies with a Kathy comic. And the four panels Bechdel puts in are Kathy saying, diet, buy, overeat, ack. Yeah, yeah. Take a number. That is so insulting. I am so sorry she did that, Kathy. Alison Bechdel has spoken about the power of telling one's own story and her similarities to her protagonist, Mo, in a talk in 2015.
7: I didn't see images anywhere of women who looked like me and my friends, so I decided I would just make them myself. Another thing I really liked about working with words and pictures together was the fact that cartoons were lowbrow, they were accessible and populist and they didn't get scrutinized the way that fine art or or literary writing did, or criticized in the same way. I was very insecure as a young person after all those rejection letters. Uh, I always liked being an outsider as a lesbian. I felt like it gave me a certain objectivity uh, about how the world worked that I would lose if I were on the inside and benefiting tremendously from the system. Um, But I also of course yearned on some deep level to just be normal, to just have everything not be such a big deal, Um, for my queerness to be seen as normal.
5: In Dykes to Watch Out For, Alison Bechdel and Mo aren't the same person, but Mo is a tool for Bechdel to say what she thought. Same goes for Kathy Geiswhite and Kathy. I want them to hang out. I'd consider it. Okay, relax. Now I want to take a look at some of Kathy's contemporaries from inside the funny pages, all from the Universal Press Syndicate. Gary Trudeau of Doonesbury, Lynn Johnston of For Better or For Worse, and Aaron Magruder of The Boondocks. All three of these writers made strides in the funny pages, and as you know by now, it's not really an easy medium to take strides in. We're talking mostly about strips that pushed against the norm in this series, but it's important to remember what that norm was. It's indisputable that for the majority of American comic strip history, there have been more strips about household pets by white guys However, beloved Garfield stand here. Then there were marginalized people working in the funny pages well into the 1980s. Even when comic strips were not actively hostile to women, queer people and non-white people, they were disproportionately centered around white boys and men or traditional family values. Family Circus is a comic that I'm pretty sure is completely built around white children misunderstanding various words. Andy Cap was a character famous for a uh, beating his wife. Dilbert had some commentary on 1990s office culture while also serving as a proto-incel. Beetle Bailey was war propaganda with gags. Oh, and there was the far side, which still fucking rocks. But most beloved strips like Peanuts and Calvin and Hobbes are classic childhood tales with larger casts, but centered on the childhood experiences of white boys in the middle class. Which, to be fair, is how Gary Trudeau's Doonesbury starts. Doonesbury is the rare comic strip that has been pretty intellectualized since it debuted back in 1970. Creator Gary Trudeau is the son of a legacy family of doctors from Saranac Lake, New York, went to a private New Hampshire high school, and then Yale, where he started writing a comic strip called Bull Tales, which was an early version of Doonesbury. While Doonesbury would later become synonymous with political commentary and satire, it started and in many ways, remained semi-autobiographical and pulled from the life experiences of the people Trudeau was surrounded by. Here's what he said to PBS NewsHour in 2010 about the beginnings of Doonesbury.
3: Well, I think what it, what it began
0: as, um, a, a kind of diary of, of my generation coming of age, um, beca- became um, the the main driving force behind it. It's just inherently fun watching a generation evolve to see you, uh, to see what
2: it's meant to that's be. That's what
0: you've always thought about it. I'm going to watch my generation evolve. I, I think so. I don't think it was. I, I had quite such a grandiose take on it. Mm-hmm. I was just trying to get through the day and mm-hmm. create a series of jokes and, and meet a series of deadlines. But I think looking back on it, that's 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 pretty much what it, it became. It was certainly marketed that way.
5: What's that you say? Another comic strip that was a chronicle of boomer life over the course of decades? In 1970, at age 22, the Universal Press Syndicate signed Trudeau on, had him change the name of the comic from Bull Tales to Doonesbury, and it was off to the races. Doonesbury began with a relatively small cast that would expand rapidly in the 50 years that followed. And much like Alice and Bechdel's characters in Dice to Watch Out For, Trudeau's characters aged in real time, and some of them even die. Even as someone who would rather cut my own head off than hand it to an Ivy League-educated white guy from a rich family, I do have to hand it to Gary Trudeau. Doonesbury is maybe the riskiest, boldest work in the funny pages in the 20th century. It's pretty punk and you don't need to just take my word for it. Aaron Magruder, creator of the Boondocks, who we'll be talking about in a bit, has regularly credited Trudeau as his biggest influence. Its beginnings are pretty innocuous. We meet Mike Doonesbury, a hippie womanizer of a college student, BD the quarterback, Mark Slackmeyer the radical, and Zonker, the stoner student who joins the football team and pisses BD off endlessly. So kind of another strip for the boys, it seemed like at first but the comic made political commentary right away. Many of the students at Trudeau's fictional Walden College were firmly anti-Vietnam, smoked weed, and Trudeau commented on his strong anti-war feelings and criticism of protest and activism through his different characters. As the comic continued, the cast widened and became more inclusive to better comment on the movements that were on fire in the 70s. Commentary on Black American activism told through the law student-turned-Congressional candidate, Ginny. Feminist activism through Ginny and her eventual roommate, Joni, who left her husband and children when Mike and Mark drove past on their motorcycle and offered to let her live on their commune. Joni is one of my favorite characters and she's featured heavily in the Doonesbury special from 1977, where we see her working to make ends meet at a daycare center with a bunch of young girls who were reacting to the second wave feminist movement.
4: Feeding them, and and, uh, picking up after them, and stopping their (laughs) fights. Yes, but I'm getting paid for it. How much?
7: Not enough, honey.
5: The strip touches on boomer women who were raised to be housewives discovering their personal power through the character Boopsy, BD's quote unquote cheerleader bimbo girlfriend who goes on to build a successful career as an actress and remains very happy in her marriage. B. D. enlists in Vietnam, thinking he was being patriotic in his early 20s, only to befriend a member of the Viet Cong and question the war himself. Andy Lippincott was an early out gay character in the comic from OG character Mark later in the strip. In its heyday, Doonesbury caused a lot of controversy, either for its political commentary or by representing people who were simply not accepted by the media of the day in the newspaper funnies. A short list of Doonesbury controversies. Let's get the music started. The Washington Post ran an editorial criticizing Doonesbury character Mark for calling Nixon guilty, guilty, guilty during Watergate. Trudeau got in trouble for implying that two 40-year-olds were having premarital sex in 1976. He got busted for criticizing tobacco companies for refusing to acknowledge the link between cancer and cigarettes. John McCain once said on the floor of the Senate in 1995, Suffice it to say that I hold Trudeau in utter contempt when Doonesbury criticized Bob Dole. Hunter S. Thompson sent Gary Trudeau a bag full of his own shit and a classic he got in trouble for saying son of a bitch. So yeah, it was a lot. And there were a few misfires thematically from Doonesbury. But for the most part, the strip does a great job at pissing off government conservatives. So a victimless crime. So yes, Trudeau had dealt with his comic being moved from the funnies to the op-ed page of newspapers repeatedly over his 50-year tenure. Usually when his subject matter went against the political leanings of the paper it was being printed in or upset readers. But you don't have to cry for him. Trudeau is maybe one of the most decorated comic strip artists of all time. In fact, he became the first strip cartoonist to win the Pulitzer Prize for editorial cartooning for his Watergate series, and was a Pulitzer finalist again in 1990, 2004, and 2005. That 1977 Doonesbury special I played a clip of? That was nominated for an Academy Award in 1978. So for all the risks that Trudeau took, a lot of them paid off, and the strip is still well-regarded today. Doonesbury was so much the intellectual's comic strip that Kathy Guy Geith- White references it in a strip from the late 70s of Kathy. Kathy is talking to Andrea in the strip and says this man happens to be very bright. He says he reads Doonesbury every day. Andrea shrugs and says big deal millions of people read Doonesbury every day. Kathy melts she's like in full crush mode and she says yeah but he understands it every day. So this was like smart people content. And I could talk about Dudesbury for much longer. How Trudeau taking a hiatus in 83 and 84 and returning with his characters aged up as boomers who had shed their activist past and become sellout adults was completely inspired. Or how I can't stand the illustration style. Or how early the strip was to denouncing Trump or Joni's radical career, or Mike Doonesbury's turn as a single father, or the comics pivoting to the millennial children of the original characters over time. But what Doonesbury does stand for is proof that the funny pages could say a lot in the 70s. As a White Ivy League guy, Trudeau had less to lose than many of his counterparts. He took a lot of risks, he moved the medium forward in many ways, and he was rewarded handsomely for it. By 1999, there had been a lot of boundaries pushed in comics. Doonesbury made political commentary in the funny pages Pulitzer worthy and inspired many imposters, and women cartoonists like Kathy and Lynn Johnston had found a foothold in the industry and the money to back it up. But the funnies were, and always had been, extremely white and center liberal to conservative in their politics. Enter The Boondocks by Aaron Magruder a comic about black socialist nine-year-old Huey Freeman and his brother, the gangster rap-obsessed Riley, moving to a predominantly white neighborhood in Maryland with their granddad. Other characters regular in the strip are Jasmine, a naive biracial child of lawyers, one black and one white, who believe in the democratic establishment and are constantly at odds with Huey, and Michael Caesar, who is Huey's best friend, also a black socialist, but has a brighter outlook on the future of the world. And if you haven't read the Boondocks, which ran in papers with the Universal Press Syndicate from 1999 to 2006. Just turn off the podcast and go read some. Or the animated series, which is also great, is streaming on HBO Max. This is a clip from the pilot of that show, which is also pulled from the comics.
4: Excuse me, everyone, I have a brief announcement to make. Jesus was black, Ronald Reagan was the devil, and the government is lying about 9-11. Thank you for your time and good night. No!
5: That can't be true. That's the tone of the boondocks. Black radicalism is in its DNA, and as much as his readers loved it, old guard comic publishers were afraid of it. Aaron Magruder's journey into the newspaper was distinctly Gen X. He began publishing it online at hitlist.com in 1996, and it was extremely popular. But when the Still College student wanted to take it nationally, he was met with a ton of resistance from the traditional comic syndicates. This is from a Washington Post piece on the topic by Lene O'Neill Parker in 1997, almost two years before the Universal Press Syndicate finally gave it the green
6: light. Now he wants to take it national. But things are a little too edgy in the boondocks to suit the cartoon syndicators. McGruder has submitted the boondocks to seven of the nine major comic strip syndicates and has gotten some praise and encouragement in return. But six, including the Washington Post writers group, have turned him down so far. Too angry, too college-oriented, one syndicator said. Too confrontational," said another. Amy Lago, executive editor for Comic Art at United Media, says it's a conservative market. There are complaints among edgier readers or cartoonists who would like to do edgier material that everything on the newspaper comic page is milk toast. It becomes very difficult for newspapers to take chances anymore, Lago says. There's too much chance that enough readers will complain about the subject matter of the strip and they'll threaten to cancel their subscription. The real criticism, Magruder believes, is that his strip is too black.
5: And it doesn't seem like Magruder was wrong. All of the syndicates who rejected the boondocks told him not to change a thing, it's just that the world wasn't ready for it. As if these people had no control over whether they could syndicate the strip or not. In 1997, there were only four nationally syndicated black cartoonists, and those numbers have not improved that much over time.
8: Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's leesa.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. You're a growing business,
4: which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack slack is where work happens with all your people data and information in one ai powered place start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites or build an automation with workflow builder to take routine tasks off your plate no coding required grow your business in slack
1: visit slack.com to get started right here right now find your beautiful new floor at right rug flooring
3: especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.
4: Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air?
2: For years, and I really like it.
5: After years of this rejection and patronizing responses from the white higher-ups who refused to carry a black socialist cartoon in spite of its huge audience, the Universal Press Syndicate, home of Doonesbury and Kathy, finally picked it up. Unlike Gary Trudeau, Aaron McGruder's journey to being a comic strip star was met with constant barriers to entry, in spite of the fact that their missions to talk about issues that affected them in an explicit and political way weren't dissimilar at all. But the boondocks took off in the papers immediately, criticizing the then massive culture of gangster rap through Riley's character, the hollow nationalism and warmongering that came after 9-11, the entire concept of working within the system and the different ways that Huey, Riley and their granddad navigated a world of racist, micro and macro aggressions at school, in their neighborhood and in the media they consumed. And Magruder had a lot of controversies as well. Let's cue the music again. Newspapers pulled a strip of Huey calling a tip line to report Ronald Reagan for funding terrorism after 9-11. The strip was also pulled for calling Condoleezza Rice a, quote, "...female Darth Vader type that seeks a loving mate to torture," unquote. Strips got pulled or moved to the op-ed section when Huey criticized black conservative commentator Larry Elder. BET got mad when the Boondocks made fun of their repeated failures to connect with black audiences. And one of my favorites, there was a lot of criticism of Magruder's ribbon and flaggy propaganda comics made after 9-11 to mock strips that were going whole uncritical nationalist instead of examining the war that George W. Bush was starting for no reason. Okay, we can stop the music. And again, there were some misfires within the Strip. For example, the way that the Strip treated Whitney Houston through her addiction was very cruel. But Magruder's controversies generally mirrored Trudeau's in that they intentionally pissed the establishment publishing his work all the way off. But he didn't get the Pulitzers or establishment recognition that Trudeau had. And given how much racism he'd been subjected to in the pursuit of getting published nationally in the first place, it is easy to guess why that may be. What the establishment couldn't take were the sheer number of people who loved the comic and Huey Freeman. And much of this has to do with its successful marketing crossover into an animated series on Adult Swim that ran from 2006 to 2014 with Magruder's close involvement, including a role as head writer. That was a major component of Magruder's choice to not return to the strip in 2006, in spite of the Universal Press Syndicate begging him to return. Here he is in 1999, as the comic was becoming a cultural phenomenon on Charlie Rose. Sorry, and he's speaking about the challenges of working in the medium.
9: So that's a tough question. I mean, some, some people say, "Well, did you get where you just picked up because it was a black strip?" And is that why it's? I just posited that it's all these other things first, right? No, I mean, but does it break through because it's? But you know, I mean, let's. We had, you know, this is a. It is certainly a black strip. You know, there is nothing in comics history to indicate that it is at all a benefit to be a black cartoonist or to do a black strip. Those cartoonists that I mentioned, again, Rob Armstrong is the biggest in in distribution. He's in over 300 papers. and He's been doing it for over 10 years. And you want to compare that to. The Peanuts or Calvin Hobbes, which, yeah. which are each in 2,200 papers. So there has been no hugely successful black strip in the over 100-year history of the medium. So in that sense, it would, the argument would be, you know, no, it's probably successful in spite of it being a black strip. The
5: Boondocks is a classic and black cartoonists, non-white cartoonists in general, are routinely passed over for wide syndication awards and recognition to this day. Again, for every time that a comic syndicate has taken what they consider to be a risk, they take 10 boring comics by white guys about household pets or literally nothing. Finally, I wanna discuss the comic that was most directly influenced and was originally picked up off of Kathy's success. Lynn Johnston's For Better or For Worse launched in 1979 in the Universal Press Syndicate, partially off the strength of Kathy's success in that same syndicate starting in 1976. Johnston was a trained Canadian artist that had worked in animation and as a medical artist and got her start in strips while she was pregnant and drew single panel cartoons for her obstetrician's office. This collection later got published as a book called David We're Pregnant in 1973 leading to a contract with the Universal Press Syndicate that was for 20 years. That is some Scientology shit. An early friend and mentor to Johnston was Charles Schultz of Peanuts. He was also an early advocate for Kathy Geisweit and was known to mentor younger comic creators and provide support for people who were relatively new to the medium. Upon accepting her 20-year contract, one of the first people who called Lynn Johnston was, wait for it, it was Kathy. Kathy called her. Here's Lynn Johnston talking about that in 2019 to interviewer Bob Andelman.
10: I mean, what a great group of people, and uh, we all got to know each other quite well. In fact, Kathy was uh, the first person I talked to. Lee gave me her home phone number, and she was gracious enough to have a nice, long conversation and sort of tell me how she worked, the way she managed. I mean, coming up with ideas is the one thing we all ask each other about. I mean, how do you do it? where Where do you do it? Sparky. Schultz used to sit and doodle on yellow legal pads, but I like to sit on a couch with a coffee and a mm-hmm. pad on my lap. And and Kathy said the thing that helped her the most was to write vignettes as if she was writing for a play, like a short uh, a short four-panel play. And I found that worked the best for me.
9: Mm. And uh, you want to just make clear what Kathy was
10: talking about? Kathy Guyswhite uh, has done a, a strip called Kathy for many, many, many years. And she also suggested I not call the strip the Johnstons because she said, I have really wondered if it was a good idea to call the strip Kathy because she was so closely uh, connected to it. And really, I mean, even if the characters look like you or your family, it's all it's all pretty well made up. I
5: love it, I love Kathy. Okay, for better or for worse follows the Patterson family, primarily stressed out matriarch Ellie Patterson, who is the wife to Sweetie Pie Dentist John and mother to Michael Elizabeth and eventually April Patterson in 1991. Lynn Johnston takes a pretty different tack to Kathy Guys White when exploring the anxieties of Boomer Women, though many of those anxieties are the same. For better or for worse, was much more mellow and realistic in tone than Kathy's more manic achisms. Ellie Patterson goes through periods of feeling bad about her body, often postpartum. There's a strip from the eighties that shows three silent panels of Ellie trying to put on her pre-pregnancy pants, looking at herself in the mirror, looking at herself in a bathing suit. And in the final strip, her well-meaning husband looks at a vacation brochure and says, "'Yes, sir, if there's one thing I'm looking forward to "'on this cruise we're taking, it's the food.'" Ellie looks at him blankly, knowing that he doesn't get it. I've read quite a bit of For Better or For Worse, and I like it. Ellie Patterson is more or less the woman that Kathy was told she needed to be. She's a supermom, a loving wife and daughter who is trying to have a career on top of it all. And this seems pretty firmly rooted in Johnston's own experiences as a wife, mother, and career woman, but Ellie's career is very start and stop depending on the state of her family. At the beginning of the strip, she works as a dental assistant in her husband's office, then gets a job at a library, uses that job, starts a part-time job at a bookstore, and her husband eventually buys the bookstore for her to run. Things end well for her, but unlike Kathy, Ellie is a family-before-career woman. Not too uncommon for the funny pages, but again, it's Lynn Johnston's lived experience that gives the strip dimension. Ellie is constantly second-guessing her life choices, in spite of being generally pretty happy. Is she not being a good enough modern woman? Is wanting more for herself? inherently selfish. She's by no means a passive happy housewife. She's constantly trying and often failing to find a better balance in her life. Here's a strip from the early 90s to that effect. Ellie is returning to work after having her third child and thinks to herself the following. I haven't reviewed a book for weeks. I wonder how my typing is. I wonder if the girl who's replaced me is doing a good job. Is she doing better? Do they miss me? I feel lost. At work, I had an identity. I had a title that meant something. Her daughter, Elizabeth, walks up to her desk, says, Hi, Mom, and hugs her. Ellie thinks this to herself in the final panel. Then again, maybe I still do. And Lynn Johnston did more than just the comic strips. She also served as the president of the National Cartoonist Society in the 90s. You know, that organization that refused to admit women at all until 1951. And you won't believe this, but she wasn't always treated with respect there. Here's how she describes her experience with the old guard of cartoonists in that 2019 interview.
10: Well, at one point, I was actually president of the National Cartoonists uh, Society, and um, they would draw naked pictures of me as I'm trying to conduct a meeting, right? But I drew a few naked pictures of my own and uh, got back at them. But, you know, it was hard. They kind of preferred that I would make them coffee and uh, serve them tea and, you know, not not really run the meeting. In the long run, sorry, in the yeah. long run, when it comes right down to it, We really like each other. We really care for each other. And I know that they like me. So it's water under the bridge. But at the time, if you're trying to conduct a meeting, put that pencil down.
5: (laughs) Johnston went on to become the first woman and Canadian to ever win the Rubin Award in 1985, a full 39 years after it started to be given out. The second woman to win that award was Kathy Guyswhite in 1992. Johnston was also a finalist to win a Pulitzer Prize for a coming out story that ran in the comic strip in the early 90s at the height of the AIDS epidemic when no other artist in the funnies besides maybe Gary Trudell would touch it. She's spoken out over the years on being a survivor of child abuse, domestic abuse, and feeling unprepared to have a child for the first time. For better or for worse was a well-loved, quietly subversive comic with a well-loved, quietly subversive creator, and the work still holds up. To conclude, where Kathy falls in boundary-pushing comics very much depends on what lens you're using. On the pages of the funnies, she represented the beginning of a resurgence of women in nationally syndicated strips talking about their own experiences, a surge that hadn't been seen for around 50 years. If you use women's comics as a yardstick, it's a reminder that Kathy was far from one of the radical voices that shaped the underground movement. Again, the role the Kathy character serves was as an observer of how things were for women like her at the time, not an attempt to shift the norm. Okay, Kathy, you can come out now.
7: You didn't talk about Delbert.
5: No, I didn't. I decided to love myself again. Or Ziggy. Is he cool?
7: We fucked. Don't talk much anymore.
5: Kathy, you really do fuck, don't you?
7: I really do. I really, really do.
5: Okay, we'll be talking more about the comics and comic artists who came after Kathy in a future episode and the explosion in new voices that came to the forefront when zines and the internet became the norm and how the funnies lagged so far behind that they've arguably become kind of irrelevant. In their time and the format where they appeared, Kathy and, for better or for worse, found their strength in showing women who were not particularly subverting expectations, but were doing their best in a world where they were never supposed to have it all. But for all the airtime boomers were given in the newspapers, they went on to become one of the country's most despised generations of all time, by me specifically, but by others too. And that's what we're talking about next episode. Kathy and the boomer generation's journey from young radicals to Reagan-era yuppies to a generation that, even now, can't let go of power. We'll talk about the generation at large and to a series of boomer women, your mommies, about their journey in the workplace. And, of course, we'll talk to our girl, Kathy. That's in two weeks on ActCast. ACCAST is an iHeartRadio production hosted, written, and researched by me, Jamie Loftus. The show is executive produced by the wonderful Sophie Lichterman, edited by the wonderful Isaac Taylor. Music is by Zoe Blade, and our theme comes from Brad Dickert. Voices you heard today include My Mother, also includes Joelle Smith, Caitlin Durante, and Jackie Michelle Johnson as Kathy. This has been the first half of ActCast. We are taking next week off for you to just soak it in. And we'll be back with the remainder of the show a week from Monday. Bye.
1: Right rug flooring. Hey
3: guys, back at the playground again, huh?
1: Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves. So we could go
5: surfing.
2: Oh, my God.
5: <laughs> <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool.
8: I'm in!
2: Ah, ski slopes. Let's
8: do it! Um, tenor a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby!
3: Wait! Did we just invent California?